0: And this is Reverend John Ferret, And the Joseph Saga continues We continue in the study of Genesis The Gospel According to Moses We're at Lesson 90 We are really going to be focusing in On Joseph's time In prison In Pharaoh's prison Near, like we found in previous lessons Potiphar's house close by and here he is going to meet up with Pharaoh's cupbearer and also his baker. but one of the things that we need to realize before we get into chapter 40 is the verse in verse 21 of chapter 39 that God was with Joseph and he blessed him with his grace. that's the Hebrew word. so if anybody ever comes to it, it says grace like the grace of Jesus, the grace of God that we understand in the New Testament is not in the Old Testament. They are totally wrong. You take the English word back to the Greek and the Greek back to the Hebrew, and we have grace. Joseph received God's grace, his favor, unmerited favor. We realize this is all part of God's plan, his engineering. Joseph, the furthest thing from his mind right now is that he's going to be the savior of the world using the bread of the ground so once again he impresses his chief jailer and based upon this Joseph was given greater responsibility in the jail like I said Joseph encounters Pharaoh's cupbearer and also his baker and the chief jailer said to Joseph you've got responsibility for these two take care of them and the cupbearer and the baker of the Pharaoh are really very important officials in Pharaoh's court. Now, Dr. Charles Ayling, in his book Egypt and Bible History, he references a scroll that was found in 1955. This is a recent find, 1955. You might call it the Kenrit, Keneret scroll. And Keneret in Egyptian means the place of confinement now in this papyrus this ancient papyrus actually it's dated back to the middle kingdom of Egypt that's 2040 BC to 1782 BC that's how old this thing is and in this papyrus it describes the jail conditions in the middle kingdom and as we've shown previously and we will show in upcoming podcasts this was the time Joseph was here in Egypt, the Middle Kingdom. It gives us detailed facts about Egyptian prisons. Now, what the fact what's interesting though is this was found in 1955. This is recent. No one knew this before. And this is in them in the Middle Kingdom. Now this suggests based upon the fact that this archeology span really has come to us for the first time in 1955, that the writer of Genesis, and especially the writer of this account, knew firsthand about conditions in ancient Egypt in their prisons. We say that it's Moses, but there are supposedly scholars who would say Moses did not write the Torah did not write Genesis and real realistically there is no extra biblical proof but definitely we say it we as Christians we believe that definitely Moses wrote the Torah and many many obviously religious Jews as well whoever it was we say Moses he had to write the Joseph saga from a firsthand experience in Egypt Because we just got the scroll in 1955 that describes the exact conditions that we read about in Genesis chapter 40. Once again, our views are supported. There is obviously some real strong evidence that Moses would have written it. He knew ancient Egypt. So archaeology, again, helps us see that Torah is real. Now there's so much more in this lesson that we're going to see. We're going to see how Yahweh, God, the Lord, teaches his Hebrews coming out of Egypt about himself. They were the first ones to able to hear the story of Joseph. Moses writes Genesis. He's writing this account. He dies. He has his scrolls available to the children of Israel who are about to cross the Jordan River and maybe there on the plains of Moab. His writings were actually read aloud. He's trying to reach his chosen people who had turned away from him and assimilated into ancient Egypt. We're about to see that as we get more towards the end of Genesis and going into the book of Exodus. They had assimilated into Egypt. They have simulated into the belief of their gods and the worship of their gods and into magic. But finally, also in this lesson, we're all going to see another amazing correlation of Joseph and Jesus. <laughs> this, this is constant. We've seen this starting in chapter 37. Now we're in chapter 50, and we're gonna it's gonna take us all the way to the end of Genesis. So you guys. <laughs> Let's not delay any longer. Come, let's go study. Finally, we get to Genesis 40. And in Genesis chapter 40, now we've got uh, Joseph is in jail. And we pick up the story, and it said, And it came to pass after these things, that's important, okay, that the butler of the king of Mitzrayim and his baker. Notice they call the cupbearer a butler. There's a lot of different variations because we don't know exactly what the guy did. I don't like Butler, okay? Uh, It's related to cup bearer. Uh, One uh, scholar said the Hebrew word may imply manager of drinks, like the owner of the bar, okay? That would be important, especially for Egyptians because they loved beer, okay? So, I mean, their bartender, And the guy that owns the bar, okay, in Pharaoh's court would be a pretty important dude because beer was huge in their culture. So manager of drinks, cup bearer, um, butler, probably not a butler. But anyway, we will keep on using this word that the butler of the king of Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim is the Hebrew for Egypt, and his baker offended their lord, the king of Mitzrayim, and Pharaoh was angry against two of his, office, of his officers. You Note know, that's called officers. These guys are very big in, in the uh, in Pharaoh's administration. They're huge. Against the chief um, and against the chief of the butlers and against the chief of the bakers. And he put them in custody in the house. Now this is interesting. He put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. Who's the captain of the guard? Potiphar. Potiphar. Okay. And so Potiphar is the captain of the guard. And so what happens is they put him in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison. Where's the prison that Joseph's in? In Potiphar's house or someplace on his premises. I find that really fascinating. That, I mean, when Potiphar took him to jail, he probably walked him across the courtyard and put him to jail. That's really, that's really interesting. Okay, um, where the place where Joseph was bound and the captain of the guard, Potiphar, charged Joseph with him and he served them. And he, they continue to season uh, in his custody. So we'll just stop there. We're not going to read all of it. So, again, the captain of the guard, you can go back to Genesis 39.1, is Potiphar. And the prison is in his house. And he orders Joseph to take care of the chief uh, baker and the chief uh, cupbearer or the manager of drinks or the butler. But here's what I want to stop. Okay. Joseph is put in jail. yes. We find that he has favor with the jailer, yes? And then pretty soon, he's almost like in charge of the entire jail. How long did that take? We don't know. The Time is passing. This is important. I want to get get to something here just a little bit. So time is passing. Then this happens, the cupbearer and the baker. And Potiphar, the captain of the guard, says, listen, these guys did something against Pharaoh. Uh, You're in charge of these guys. Okay. You're the main man here and you're in charge of them. So how old is he? We don't know. He's not 30 and he's not 17. Okay. So you'd say 17, 30, 30 minus 17 is 13. Okay. Just to keep that in mind, 13. So you got all of these years. He's in jail perhaps for over 12 years. Because remember, he starts his work with Pharaoh at age 30. We'll get to that. So, the archaeology, I think, is very interesting because it lends to the fact of the veracity, the truthfulness, the credibility of this historical event, the Joseph event. Dr. Ailing who has now, If I think he's retired now here at Northwestern University. Dr. Charles Ayling was my teacher, and um, he is a renowned Egyptologist. It's really funny. You would talk about, do you know Dr. Ayling? You talk to people here in the United States. I never heard of him. I go to Egypt among Muslim guides. Do you know Dr. Ayling? Dr. Ayling, he's an Egyptologist. He's a short, fat man. Yes? Yes, that's him. They remember this guy. Okay. So he's more popular in Egypt among the Muslims, okay, the Muslim Egyptian guides and so on, than he is among us um, because of the archaeology. But anyway, in his book, Egypt and Bible History, Dr. Ailing talks about um, a papyrus that they found and actually was translated and written about by uh, Dr. W.C. Hayes in 1955. I think it's in the London Museum. And it's the papyrus from the Middle Kingdom. And what's interesting, in that papyrus, um, and we brought this up in the last session, there is abundant information in there about Egyptian prisons, detailed. Egyptian prisons from Joseph's day, all the way back into the end of the Middle Kingdom. They were called in Egyptian kenret, the place of confinement. Let me read a paragraph from his book because something's very important that is in the papyrus that's in the Joseph story. Amazing. Listen. The Egyptian great prison at Thebes, particularly prominent in the Middle Kingdom. And so I have a young man here who was with me in Thebes about a year ago. Not Thebes, it was Luxor. Okay, But we were there. I don't know where the prison is. Uh, Josiah, but anyway, there's one. It's on the papyrus, anyway. The great Egyptian prison at Thebes, particularly prominent in the Middle Kingdom, and perhaps, but not certainly, the actual prison of Joseph's confinement, maybe, had a full staff of officials, mainly scribes and guards, under the supervision of an overseer. That's Joseph, because that's what he became. Instances of the use of this title are somewhat rare. But there are examples from the time of Joseph, including the reference in Genesis 39-21 to the keeper of the prison. Since Joseph was literate, having been a steward, okay, remember his literacy was established in the house of Potiphar because he was the head of everything. He had to obviously do all the records and all the bookkeeping and that type of stuff, and that's exactly what he did. He was literate, having a stu- uh, being a steward. It is not inconceivable that he became a scribe of the prison as a result of the promotion mentioned, okay, and Genesis thirty-nine. And I just, to me, that it gets to be so exciting because this is not a fable. This is not. I mean, this here's a historical event. And you've got you're reading it right in the Bible, and all of a sudden archaeology just jumps out at you. There is a um, I'm going to have to find this for you. I know it's in Dr. Kareed's books uh, on the uh, notion to understand the Torah. You need to understand Egypt. Dr. Kareed mentions this several times. He said there is archaeology in Egypt that has just been discovered. They found it, obviously, there in Egypt, and they find it only in one other place, the Bible. And the archaeology points to the fact of a dating of Joseph, the dating of Egypt, according to biblical dating. Amazing stuff. And so what Corita is saying, whoever wrote the Torah, do you understand there's a debate? There are people who are Christian who say Moses never wrote the Bible or the Torah. Never wrote it. It was written by a whole bunch of other people, probably in the second century B.C. I believe it's Moses. Dr. Creed would say, whoever wrote it must have been living during the events because it's recorded here and the archaeology has only appeared for the first time now. It's in the Bible and it's in archaeology. Those people in the 2nd century BC had no idea of this. So they couldn't comment whatsoever. They couldn't have made it up because they didn't know it existed. Fascinating. So archaeology has a major role to help us with this. Now, now you know the situation. So here's the cupbearer, here's the baker, they're in prison. And they have these dreams. Um, I, I could comment on these dreams all day, but I'm going to go a different route. In the Torah, uh, in terms of uh, the Dennis Prager uh, audio tapes on his Torah teaching over the past 25 years, he goes into a lengthy um, academic discussion, and, and it's quite true that the Bible, okay, the Torah specifically, the first five books of the Bible, is vehemently against witchcraft, vehemently against magic, vehemently against divination. Why? If if you're somebody who's practicing magic, you're dead. I mean, this... And it really comes down to this. The reason why the Bible is so against magic, okay? Now, I'm talking about magic, the evil kind, okay? Not magic tricks with cards. Yeah. But anyway, with regards to this, it means... That mankind can manipulate the forces, okay, that there are other forces besides God. And God is saying, there are no other forces besides me. Now, I bring this up because we're talking about dreams. and We're talking about the dreams of a cupbearer. And we're talking about the dreams of the baker. Do we remember that Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, had dreams? He kind of did his own interpretation in terms of what they meant, okay? But dreams are not evil. Joseph had dreams. Remember the dreams he had, that he was going to be over his brothers, which he was, okay? Now, these guys have dreams, but here's the kicker. In Egypt, matter of fact, let me do this. Kareed will bring it up. As, as has been mentioned, dream omens in ancient Egypt, like the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, and then Pharaoh later on, were a means of receiving information from the next world. That's what they believed. They were widely employed as a means of knowing the divine will. However, the ancient Egyptians also believed that it was necessary to have diviners who were skilled in the arts of interpreting dreams. Divination. That is against the Bible. That is a Torah law. It's a sin to, to actually divine, be a diviner. Joseph is correcting the idea here by saying that not only are the dreams themselves communications from above, but so too are the interpretations of the dreams. In other words, God interprets the dreams. Okay, He is thus denying... The magical, mystical power of the Egyptian magicians. And that's the point I want to make. In order to interpret dreams in Egypt, dreams aren't bad, but you needed a magician. Somebody who delves in the black arts. Somebody who can manipulate the gods. Okay? Who has a power to manipulate gods, to have the gods do what you want them to. That's magic. Okay? That's what you're attempting to do. To come, uh, have forces come uh, against somebody else. So Joseph comes against this culture and religion. We Look at this in verse 8. In chapter 40. Verse 8. And they said to him, We have dreamed a dream and there is no interpreter for it. Meaning we can't get a magician. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Only him. Now think about the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. This is, this is why this is so important. This is why to understand Egypt in the Joseph story is to help the Hebrews who are on the plains of Moab after Moses has died and they finally have the first five books because that's all they had. They had the first five books of the Bible, Moses wrote them, and here it is, and they're reading this. They had bought into the wrong story. They integrated the worship of those Egyptian gods. They honored Pharaoh, man-god, okay? Okay. And here, Joseph is saying, no, those magicians are wrong. The Pharaoh, all of that is... And so, interesting, we have a polemic. This is what it is. Because Joseph is saying, it's not magicians. It's not a diviner. It's not divination. It is only God. He will give us the interpretation. And it just so happened that Joseph was blessed to be given the word of God as a prophet, okay, to actually do that. Now... So that's number one. And again, we come back to the fact, how did the Hebrews understand these stories? Not us, because they're coming out of this. But there's something else. During the time of the Exodus, there was a story that was popular in Egypt. And we have it recorded on papyrus from The New Kingdom. And I'm coming in, coming from Against the Gods by Dr. Kareem. And again, he's talking about ancient Egypt, understanding the culture of ancient Egypt, to understand the Torah, to understand how God is trying to get to the Hebrews. Not you. He's trying to get to them because they're coming out of Egypt. They're the first hearers of this. Okay? So it makes sense to them. There was a story, and it's called The Tale of the Two Brothers. It's fully preserved on the papyrus uh, that is housed now in the British Museum. The manuscript dates to during the 19th Dynasty of the New Kingdom and maybe even before. Here's the story. See if it sm- sounds familiar. The story revolves upon two main characters. One of them is Anubis. That's an Egyptian god, Okay, god of the underworld. God of the place of the dead, God of the tombs, God of mummification, Anubis. He's the jackal. okay. And his brother, Bata. And he is pictured normally as a bull. And back in the Old Kingdom, Bata was also the god of the dead. And we know, for instance, that Anubis and Bata were actually the gods of a certain province in ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt was broken up into districts. Like counties, okay? So a certain county, Anubis and Batad, the two brothers, the brother gods, okay, actually controlled this one province. Uh, anyway, that was their politics. So those are the names of two gods. And now this is mythology. This is a mythological story. The tale begins by presenting a pleasant, idyllic scene of an Egyptian household, consisting of the characters Anubis his wife, and his brother Bata. The Edenic picture is soon shattered as the conscientious, hard-working Bata is falsely accused of sexually attacking his older brother's wife. He had, in reality, spurned her advances. Anubis believes his lying wife, turns against his brother Bata, and forces his brother to leave the family. He later finds out the truth kills his wife, and casts her to the dogs. That's the Joseph story. Same thing. The Hebrews coming out of Egypt would have known the tale of the two brothers. Now, this is mythology. Are you with me? It's two gods. Interesting story. So, Dr. Kareed has a chart in here. I'm not going to go through the chart, but he goes into the parallels between the Joseph account with Potiphar's wife and Potiphar and jail, and also the tale of the two brothers. But the key thing in here, God is creating a real event that takes a mythological story in Egypt and destroys it as a bunch of crap. That's what He's doing. These fables, okay, were familiar, especially to the Hebrews. They bought into the stuff and saying no takes a real event to actually put aside an Egyptian fable, an Egyptian parable. There are more of these. Wait till we get to the splitting of the Red Sea. There are two accounts of the splitting of the Red Sea. One here and one in Egyptian mythology. There is another one, and that is the birth of a hero in Egypt to rescue a bunch of people who are downtrodden. That's the Moses story. When we study this, theologians like Kareed would say, when you see this stuff, first of all, for us, if you've never experienced it, it can be very disturbing. You say, what? But to the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, God is saying that stuff is lies. That stuff is mythology. Those gods don't exist. This is the truth in a real historical setting, Moses, Exodus, and so on. So God uses Torah as a polemic against Egypt and it's God's, and it's worldview. So a polemic, again, is an argument against doctrines or belief in the tale of the two brothers. So again, Torah is written by Moses. The first audience, again, is the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. What do they see? What do they understand? How do they see this? Joseph is not an allegory. If it was an allegory, if it was another mythological parable, then you have two mythological parables side by side. One is history. One is mythology. One is about gods that don't exist. One is about a real person. Now, here's the key. Remember, you guys, those Hebrews, as we will see at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, they bought into the Egyptian culture. Hook, line, and sinker. And when they do that, you've heard this said, I know you have. It is easy for God to take them out of Egypt but very difficult to take Egypt out of them. Okay, So what is he doing over and over and over again in Torah? Let me show you, Hebrews, who I am. Let me help you take Egypt out of you so you understand these fables are false. Pharaoh is false. The gods are false. With this approach, we can definitely understand. It becomes a deeper meaning for us too, but I want to let you guys know this. To me when I think about ancient Egypt and I think about what's happening in our society today here in the 21st century I have to say we live in Egypt. We live in Egypt. And then some. Okay, we don't have pyramids, okay? And you don't have a leader of the country who's like Pharaoh who declares himself man god. But anyway, when we take a look at the evil around us I mean when we think about the fact and I th- I think this statistic is correct, that 4,000 to 5,000 babies are aborted daily in the United States, daily. And 10% are late-term abortions. 10%? 500? Some of you know what a late-term abortion is? You talk about the evil that's around us? Egypt did not do that. So our Egypt is different. So when we look at this, we go back to John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, if you're a disciple of mine, you will live according to my word. You will stand on my word. You will apply living my word in this evil generation, just like Joseph did. You will adhere to that. You will be my people, and you will be my disciple. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So again, we can see how that applies even to us today. Anyway, the cupbearer is released. He returns to Pharaoh's court, and the cupbearer forgets Joseph. How do you like that for gratitude? Doesn't even say thank you to the guy. Remember Joseph says, remember me? Okay, and the cupbearer forgets him. By the way, when the cupbearer leaves, I'll prove to this this is again, these dates are these dates are important and these ages are important. The cupbearer leaves, okay. I can prove to you that when the cupbearer leaves, Joseph is 28. Hang on to that. We'll be there in just a second. So with the cupbearer, he leaves, but Yahweh. The Lord I will never leave Joseph. He doesn't leave us. Now Joseph is silent here, and Dennis Prager brings up a very good point uh, here when he talks about. I want to show you the difference how where Dennis went and then where I went with it. Dennis said, and Dennis Prager obviously is a deeply religious Jewish man. Uh, he doesn't, he's not a Christian. But he said, here's Joseph, and he's it's very and the Torah is very silent in terms of Joseph's reaction cupbearer leaves, okay, and he never hears again. I mean, there's no gratitude. At least to come back and, and say, thank you, I'll say something to Pharaoh. Did Joseph feel abandoned? Likely. The Torah doesn't say. But you say he's a human man. He's a human. Did he feel forsaken? P- probably. Okay, yeah, I'm still stuck in there. At least he could have said something. but this is where I took it. What about Jesus? Here we go again, the correlation between this paradigm where God might be saying, you want to see my Savior? You want to see my Messiah? Look at Joseph. You want to see the type of deliverer he's going to be? Look at the example of Joseph. Because Matthew 27, 26, what does Jesus say out loud My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned by his family, by the authorities, by his brothers, the apostles. Exactly, because who denied him? Yeah, Peter. So these interesting, again, the correlation between Joseph and Jesus is astounding. Okay, it's amazing. As we end off lesson 90, I wanted to bring up uh, Dr. John Carreed's book again Against the Gods, I mentioned it in uh, this podcast and I have mentioned John Carreed previously as well Dr. John Carreed is a highly respected Bible archaeologist, Egyptologist and theologian uh, head scholar in the writing of the new archaeological study Bible from Crossway and he is my one of my scholarly resources I mean he's got a whole commentary on the Torah and he's got this book against the gods and it shows unequivocally that to understand Torah completely you need to understand Egypt because God over and over and over again uses the Torah the things that he's teaching us as a polemic against ancient Egypt, because the first people to hear God's word were the Hebrews coming out of Egypt who had assimilated into the Egyptian culture, and God wanted to show them that indeed the things that they held on to and believed in because they had been blinded by the gods and the mythology of Egypt was false. And there's a lot of things that Jesus, God teaches, that's 180 degrees in opposition to Egypt, a polemic. And you will find this in that book, Against the Gods. And it just so happens you can get a free copy of Against the Gods. And I've given you that link, again, before you listen to this podcast wherever you are getting the podcast, there should be a way of accessing the notes that are associated with this podcast. I normally write some extra material and indeed I do have a little bit of, again, background of Dr. John Kareed and a link to that book, a free link where you can get a free copy of Against the Gods. So take a look for that. I know if you were at my website and you looked for this lesson it's pretty obvious there's the picture of the podcast and below that is all the writing the links and everything you can find that's pretty simple uh, if you're at the website Uh, but if you're accessing this through another media they have lots of different ways of being able to open up and expand the window below the place where you play this to actually uh, be able to get those links and those notes now, we just finished lesson 90, and it's pretty obvious now that the correlation between Joseph and Jesus, it's pretty obvious. It's pretty unshakable. It's there. And God, our God, he, he's predicting Jesus. I mean, it's so amazing how we see Joseph's life as an exact mirror of Jesus's life. And again, we talk about Elhanan ben Avraham's book from Netevia.org. I brought that up before. And a link to the store at Netevia.org where you can get that book, Mashiach ben Yosef. Well, where Elhanan ben Avraham actually goes through all the connections between Joseph and Yeshua. And again, just like in Lesson 90, joseph probably thought he was forsaken and forgotten and just as we remember jesus in his dilemma that he probably thought or felt that he was forsaken remember on the cross jesus said my god my god why have you forsaken me he's quoting psalm 22 now what's amazing to me about this paradigm of Jesus is that it's only been really known since after the Middle Ages. Yes, yeah, certainly the rabbis in the Middle Ages they said that Messiah had to be two different characters: one, Mashiach ben David, and the other one, Mashiach ben Yosef. Messiah, the son of David, the conquering one, and Messiah, the son of Joseph, the suffering one. But they never associated with Jesus. And so far, as far as I can see from my research and my study, and I may be wrong, I cannot find any Christian scholars at all that even reference this. It seems like it's more modern than anything else, and it's obvious. Yahweh has not stopped, guys. He's not stopped coming to us today to reach us, to teach us, to help us become his people so we're about ready to go to Psalm Psalm 91 we're about ready to go to Lesson 91 Joseph is going to be released he is not forgotten he thought he was forsaken he thought the cupbearer forgot him completely but all of a sudden that cupbearer remembers something as we go into Genesis 41 when Pharaoh has his dreams and Joseph was not forgotten because God is controlling all of this. He has a design for Joseph and Joseph doesn't even know what the design is. He's now to become the second highest in the land of Egypt, probably the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth. And it's time for Joseph to become the savior of the world, saving the world with the bread from earth the bread from the ground, where Jesus is the Savior of the world from the bread of heaven, himself. And we'll remember in Luke 24:50 that Jesus lifted up his hands to bless his 120 disciples before he ascended the Father. Just like the high priest daily lifts up his hands. It could very well be that Jesus blessed them with the ironic Blessing. I've taken the ironic Blessing and I've turned it into a prayer. And I'd like to end our session with that blessing, that blessing that's based upon the high priestly blessing that God gave to Moses to Aaron to bless the people. Yevarekenu Adonai vishmarkenu, Yair Adonai panava aleinu, So together, let's say this in English. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make His face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon us, and may He give us His shalom. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.